Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Miranda Hill is a classically trained musician, uh, and as well as playing with orchestras and ensembles, for the last nine years has been coordinating and directing and presenting homophonic uh, described as Australia's gayest classical music concert. It's a celebration of queer composers, contemporary composition, and this strange thing, Miranda, that we call, what, contemporary classical? Contemporary classical, Western Western art music. It's all sorts of highfalutin names for what we do, but the reality is it's just music. It's new music. It's Classical music has it's continued since Bach. People are still writing it. People are still innovating with it, and... That's what we're celebrating at Homophonic, but we're particularly celebrating the the gay ones. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's part of the Midsummer Festival, and there's an opportunity to get a bunch of queer musicians together to celebrate uh, a queer canon. How much has the the musical programming changed in the nine years since you started? Was the focus very much on new music at the start, or was the focus on presenting work by queer composers? It's always been about new music. Uh, we've always had commissions. It's always been that focus because I'm super passionate about the fact that we hear, we know, we know what new dance looks like and we know what new visual art looks like, but it's very difficult to actually hear and engage with contemporary classical music. You hear it in movies sometimes, but even that, it's, it, that's not your focus when you're listening to it. So this is a way to bring all of that together while also celebrating the, the queer focus of that. The first show, though, we did do an arrangement of Tchaikovsky's uh, The Nutcracker Suite, I think, for two double basses and bassoon, which I'm sure he would have approved of. Yeah. <laughs> now, when you say that contemporary classical is difficult to engage with, do you mean that there is a perception that the music itself is difficult, challenging, atonal, uh, or do you mean that it's just not programmed very often or even played often on, say, uh, whether it's Triple R or 3MBS, for example, so people don't have the chance to actually hear it and appreciate it? Yeah. Option E, all of the above. Yes, is all of those things. It's not, there is music that is atonal and some of that is actually deliberately difficult to to engage with. It's designed to break the hierarchy and to question what music is and how music is put together, how we establish sound and how we hear sound. There's all this fascinating uh, history that, uh, you know, Gregorian chant, we listen to that. That's because the interval of the third, which is the absolute basis of our modern music, it's the basis of Bach and everything, Jen Cloa, everything you've played, that was considered dissonant. That was harsh and horrible to listen to back then. Uh, now, of course, it's the first thing you learn when you pick up a recorder. So things evolve. What we consider to be atonal today is just questioning that it's exploring it's looking through all of that but we it's I'm trying to think of the reason I don't know the reason why I think we really like the canon the canon is beautiful Beethoven is amazing he's also dead very dead (laughs) very very dead thank you for your service we really appreciate it but you know it's whatever the Beethoven version of okay boomer is like it's it's okay there's more happening now and we should give space to that 
the main stage, the orchestras, the, it's, a, it's a contentious statement, but I think the fact that a lot of music is now about making money means it's very difficult to program new works because people buy tickets you know, if tickets to the main stage, you're paying 80 to $100 to go see those concerts. You want to know that you're going to enjoy it, which is why for La Mama, for our homophonic season, it's 20 to $30. And there's a lot of little things on the program. I guarantee you will love at least half of it. Before we get into the detail about what is being played tonight and in the coming nights uh, for Homophonic at uh, the La Mama Courthouse, and as always, my quick disclaimer, I'm the chair of La Mama. It's a volunteer position. I don't benefit financially from promoting any La Mama shows. End of disclaimer. Um, you mentioned Beethoven. We're going to hear a hell of a lot of him this year because it's the yes. 250th anniversary of his birth. Mm. So Beethoven being programmed everywhere. But even though I'm not a huge and regular attender of classical music, I've also been heartened to note, looking at a lot of the programming across some of the, the major orchestras this year, for example, there's lots of new work being premiered alongside that. So, for example... Uh, the MSO coming up are playing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony um, and they're playing it with uh, the acrobats of Circa, creating a new circus show with it. But they're also playing it alongside uh, the premiere of a new composition by Deborah Cheatham, for Fabulous. example. Fabulous. So there, there does seem to be the opportunity. And I wonder whether you think, is this like... I don't know, introducing people to new classical music by stealth. They're coming to hear Beethoven <laughs> and they're getting Deborah Cheatham uh, as a kind of, kind of yeah, it's flying under the radar in some way. Exactly. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's exactly what we should be doing. And the music that Deborah's writing is an extension of what Beethoven was writing. It's connected. It's all connected through this, this history of art music. It's the MSO does have a history of doing that. I mean, when Marcus Stentz was on, he used to, at the end of, they'd do a very standard classical Melbourne Symphony program. And then at the end, they'd say, okay, if you want to stay, we're going to play one more thing. And the people who really didn't want to hear it would leave. And the people who wanted to hear it would stay. And it was always amazing. There was brass playing from all around different places in the theatre and you'd you'd get to hear these sounds that you'd never heard before. And that's what I love about contemporary classical music. We think we know what a piccolo sounds like. We're like, yep, piccolo, small, loud, high. Got it. We've got to work on the program this year for amplified piccolo, vocoder and bass drum, which does not it's still loud and high, I will give you that. It's still a piccolo, but it doesn't sound anything like what you imagine a piccolo sounds like. And that's so liberating to be able to hear that and look and watch someone playing the piccolo and then hear this completely different world. There's all these whistle tones and vocoders and sound effects. It's, a, it's an amazing piece. So given that uh, we're now into the ninth year of Homophonic, this uh, kind of queer contemporary classical series of, of performances, one of the things that the evolution of the programming has allowed you to do is introduce the inaugural Homophonic Pride Prize. Very difficult to say, isn't it? The Homophonic Pride Prize. I've been practising and I still struggle. We have, this is that, and the, the very first... Homophonic Pride Prize winner is Stephen DeFilippo, who has written Star Pick for Amplified Piccolo Vocoder and Bass Drum. <laughs> I do like saying that. It was an idea actually of one of our audience members, one of our regular audience members who's a big supporter of the arts, Andrew Boyle, came up to me after the show a couple of years ago and was like, let's do something. Let's build something. Let's give back to this community. And so we've come up with this idea 
so every year it will be a competition for one composer to work with one specific performer. So for this year it was to work with Layla Engel, who is a phenomenal flautist and piccolo player. And Stephen is a uh, was from rural Western Australia, now lives in America, and I had never heard of him before. None of us had ever heard of him before, and I know now that people are programming his music because we've all gone through and listened to his website and being like, what? This guy is amazing. You've also uh, gotten the program this year work by Wally Gunn, who's an old friend of mine who I knew when he was doing kind of in little indie rock band stuff on Brunswick Street at the <laughs> Punters Club, for example, the late lamented Punters Club, oh. uh, uh, but is now working in the US, working as a, a, as a composer and seems to have a much large, higher profile in the States than he does here as a composer of contemporary classical music. I would agree with that. Yeah, Wally is phenomenal. The work that we're doing of his, it's a work with his and Maria Joukowsky. And we're only doing the first movement of The Ascendant, but it's for eight voices and drum kit. And it is transcendent in that space. Every time they rehearse it, somebody, one of our audience members said it made them feel like they were smiling and their heart was breaking at the same time. And yeah, it's something really special. But Wally, Wally's been involved in homophonic for years. We've commissioned two works from him. The very first year, nine years ago, Wally wrote us a new piece, and that's where I met him. He's such a champion. But you're right, he has won major prizes in the US and one is managing to stage operas and getting a lot done over there. I don't know why that's not as much the case here, but I think it may just be a, that Australia's art scene and art music scene is a lot smaller. And it's hard. It's a lot harder to break into it. I would say, actually, he's doing remarkably well at being present in the Australian scene, considering he lives in New York. Yeah. yeah. Um, am I right in thinking his writings, uh, uh, whether it, I don't know whether it's a, a song cycle or, a, or an opera about the gay bushranger Captain Moonlight? Yes, Captain Moonlight. I'm so excited. I can't wait for that to come to Australia or us to go to New York and see it. One of the two. Yeah. That's also with the same, a collaboration with the same poet. Yeah. And speaking of poets, there's a big focus uh, for Homophonic this year on poets paired with contemporary classical music. Yes, it's sort of come, a, it's sort of happened. It's such a lovely way to tie in different parts of our artistic community and to bring in these literary queer writers. So we have a work by local composer Christina Green met the iconic and very much missed performance poet Candy Royale at Bundan on Trust of all places. Uh, and she's got permission to set her poem Edge Sky Self from Trillion Trini Awakenings. That's being performed by Eleanor Jackson. Um, and it's it sounds nothing like Candy's music. It's a completely different sound to Candy's music. And Eleanor's style is very different to Candy's style. And so it's a it's a resetting and a reimagining of this really iconic poem. It's a beautiful thing in the space. If you've just tuned in, my guest is Miranda Hill, who's the artistic director of Homophonic, which is a, a concert series of contemporary classical music by queer composers uh, programmed as part of Midsummer Festival at the La Mama Courthouse in Drummond Street, Carlton, as we said, now in its ninth year. It, it really feels like there is now a loyal and dedicated audience who, for this event. Yeah, I think so. It's quite amazing to create over many years a, a cult event and you see people coming back year after year. I only see them once a year and I see them from a, a distance, uh, but they are beautiful people and I love them. But I think a lot of that is that 
we strive, the whole ensemble strives to make this as accessible as possible. Like, we love this music. We love it. We believe in it. We live it and breathe it. We study it. We write it. We just all, all about it. We talk about it. We become really boring when people start to talk to us about it. We're just like, let's get into the fine details. But we know that it's not always easy to access. A lot of these concerts are sometimes you would never know about them if you're not in that scene, if you don't know someone on the stage. So if, if you're not a composer or if you're not a classically trained musician yourself who's looking to play more than just the canon. Yeah, you may not even know these concerts exist. These concerts are happening constantly throughout Melbourne. They're every week there is a concert of new music happening, but they can be quite difficult to access. Uh, so Homophonic is about getting that music out there to a really different audience, which is, I think, made easier by the fact that the show is just so much fun. It's a celebration. It's a celebration of how far we've come since. I mean, I mentioned Tchaikovsky and you go you go back, Copeland, Barber, Britain, there's all of these names who have all of these stories of oppression that go with them. And then we come through to today and we're able to have I think we've got a composer range from still in school to having finished their doctorates and working as professional musicians and composers for many, many years. And they're all on the same stage and they're all working together, but we're all part of the same queer history and queer lineage. And that is just so amazing and worth celebrating. I think one of the other things that's worth celebrating is you're making this music accessible without dumbing it down. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Who wants to dumb it down? Where's the fun? We all hate being talked down to. No one wants to be talked down to. And this music, actually, I know I've described it as inaccessible, but it's not. It's perfectly accessible. All you have to do is find a space in which you're comfortable to listen. And we actually, we have a, a listening meditation built into the show this year to really just give us that space to listen and to understand what listening can mean, what we can hear. It's a very beautiful show this year. I think we need that right now the world needs a little bit of beauty and it's been a joy to put this one together and to hear these performers. You know, it's the first, it's the first thing we do all year is homophonic every year and we just get together and just get to dive in to this really lush sound world. Homophonic is happening tonight, Friday night and Saturday, uh, both Saturday afternoon and Saturday night at La Mama Courthouse Theatre, 349 Drummond Street, Carlton. So tonight's performance, 7.30, Friday's performance at 7.30, which will be audio described. Yes, audio described by Description Victoria, yes. And then Saturday at 1.30pm is a relaxed performance, yeah. which means slightly softer music, lights up slightly higher. If uh, you or a family member or somebody who sometimes feels uncomfortable going to concerts because if you make involuntary noises uh, or uh, physical ticks that... Uh, it's, this is a kind of concert that you can go to and uh, and relax at and enjoy. And then final performance Saturday at 7.30pm, for which there's about 20, 25 tickets left. So yes. if you want to book, that's probably the one to book for because uh, I think there's going to be uh, high demand for the annual homophonic shows at the La Mama Courthouse Theatre. As I said, tonight, 
Friday night and two shows on Saturday. Jump online, lamama.com.au to book. Tickets are $30 or $20 concession. So lamama.com.au and Homophonic is on at the Lamama Courthouse Theatre, 349 Drummond Street, Carlton, as part of Midsummer Festival. I've been talking with its artistic director and host uh, slash MC Miranda Hill. Miranda, thanks so much for coming in. Triple R. Speaking of theatre, I'm joined in the studio by my next guest for the morning, theatre maker and director Declan Green, who is here to chat about the first Red Stitch show for the year, which he is directing, uh, Nick Coyle's The Feather in the Web. Declan, lovely to have you back Thanks on the Triple R. for having me. Very great pleasure. Now, I first kind of encountered Nick's writing God, years ago when he was part of the, the trio Pig Island doing work at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival at Trades Hall. So that must be over, easily over 10 years ago now. And even then I was like, there is something sharp and very clever and very strange about this guy's writing. And it intrigued me. What is it about this play that you wanted to direct? Because am, am I right in thinking you pitched this play to Red Stitch? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, like you, I've just been a fan of Dinks for years and years and years. I miss the Pig Island boat, but I um, I think the first show of his I saw was um, Me Pregnant, which was just kind of a kind of demented medieval one-person show kind of Fantasia where he played a nerd named Emmeline. And um, and I followed all his um, one-person shows and absolutely loved them. And then when he wrote uh, Feather in the Web as his first uh, um, a kind of piece of uh, playwriting not to be performed by himself... Um, I asked him to send me a copy of it and I read it and I just instantly fell in love with it. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is, and this is actually the first play I've ever directed that I haven't been, uh, that I, actually it's the first play I've ever directed that hasn't been a first time production of it. So it was also just something I really wanted to do to cut my teeth as well and just be like, I want to like do a script that isn't going to change every three seconds in rehearsal. That's understandable. Yeah, with the writer going, oh, that scene doesn't work. No, yeah, no rewriting yeah. it completely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, for people who don't know his writing, what's the, the, the tone of this work? Um, I think Nick's writing is always really... It, it's it's a really kind of um deadpan absurdity. Like it's, it's really, really funny, really, really dry and... Um, but Feather in the Web, I think, even if you're familiar with Nick's writing previously, will have some surprises for you. It's um, it's actually it, it's something that starts in kind of familiar territory of his writing, like it's extremely silly, um, extremely absurd and wild and chaotic, and um, but it actually moves into some pretty um tender and pretty uh heart wrenching kind of uh, territory. So it's been described as a satire mm-hmm. uh, and with a focus on a monstrous heroine. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, it's a, the, it's essentially the story of um of Kimberly, who is this really uh, kind of force of chaos in the world she lives in. Um, she is uh, we we see her in the opening four scenes uh, in this world of kind of um uh, this very kind of banal and like deeply familiar world of kind of um. Uh, you know, like gossiping about cake and activewear and uh, basically the kind of minutiae of our lives at the moment, next Netflix recommendations and and um, cosmetics counters. And she basically just enters a scene and destroys it. She's just a force of pure anarchy and destruction. Um, and she's violently repulsed by um, small talk <laughs> 
and uh, basically any of the kind of like trappings of our contemporary world, she just hates them. So if there's a social, sorry, if there is a social convention, she is tearing it down, smashing through it, ripping it asunder. Yeah, I think Nick Nick um in an interview I read with him once described her as a kind of form of wish fulfillment. Like if somebody's talking to you about their meal prep, you just want to kick them in the shins as hard as you can, or smush some cake into their face, and that's exactly what Kimberly does. She's just kind of like pure id. And um, but then uh, she something really horrifying and tragic happens to her, which is that she falls in love with a very very bland, very boring man, and uh, essentially the play kind of um, uh, I guess charts her attempts to make this man love her and uh, erase the parts of herself that are special in order to make that happen. Now, there was a review of it, uh, uh, Ben Nutzi in Time Out, Sydney, described her as one of the most extraordinary protagonists written for the Australian stage. That's a big claim. Do you agree with it? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it's totally, when you read the play, it's one of the things that totally magnetises you to it instantly. It's, um, she is really like um, no character I think I've seen on an Australian stage. And I think it's because she's also, um, Nick's really unafraid of making her unlikable (laughs) um she is super violent but she's also really really clever in the way that she destroys people she doesn't only do physical violence she also does kind of like emotional terrorism (laughs) on on people and um and and essentially the gambit of the first few scenes is nick will set up a kind of like excruciating person who's grandstanding about how interesting or quirky they are and then kimberly will turn up and ruin them and uh and there's something really fun and delightful in that i think which will work for a few scenes, but then the challenge presumably is to uh, kind of extend that in a way so that she becomes a, a more kind of three-dimensional character, not just a, somebody who comes in and breaks things. Yeah. Uh, because that would be repetitive after a while. Yeah, exactly. And I think actually, I think that was the... Because Nick initially um, submitted the first three scenes of Feather in the Web, which actually are, are purely that dynamic of Kimberly kind of destroying and upsetting and ruining people. <laughs> Um, to a playwriting competition. Um, and uh, then when he uh, Griffin Theatre asked him to expand the play to put it on for its debut uh, production last year, um, Nick was like, oh, now something has to happen. Like, now I actually have to create something. And that's kind of where this love narrative kind of came into it, where he was like, what's the worst possible thing that could happen to a person like Kimberly? What's the worst sort of crisis? And it, it would be that she actually wants something instead of only to watch the world burn and that she wants something that's actually that is complete, the antithesis of, yeah, yeah that is in core kind of repulsive antithesis to to who she is as a human being essentially so in some ways this is a, a satirical comedy but it's also then a, a tragedy at heart as well yeah yeah definitely I, I think it's one of the things i love about the play is that i think it's one of the most kind of um accurate and kind of painful representations of um I guess the the details of our lives that we don't expect to see on stages, just people sitting at the end of a really long, boring work day, having gone to the gym in the morning so they aren't disgusted by their bodies, eating Uber Eats because they're too tired to cook and and drinking an entire bottle of Chardonnay while watching true crime. Like, that's (laughs) the world of of Feather in the Web. And it's the world that we love seeing Kimberly destroy, but then it's the tragedy is watching her actually go, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to become one of these people. And the fact that Nick has made that the core horror of the play is, I think, so deeply funny. Who's playing Kimberly? Because it strikes me as a really challenging role. You need an, uh, an actor who can be ferocious and, and fearless, but also make us care about and empathise with somebody who transitions from uh, monster to kind of self-created victim. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we... So um, Michelle Brazier is playing the role um, who a lot of people 
people know from uh, Mad as Hell and her comedy duo Double Denim. Um, Michelle's kind of she's a uh, I mean her background she trained in theatre but has been working principally kind of in the world of comedy um, uh, and uh, kind of sketch and improv and um, and actually not really not really improv classically but kind of she works a lot with Auntie Donna. Um, and, uh, and yeah, uh, Michelle is amazing at, uh, she has, she has such an incredible eye for absurdity and I think she's such an incredible, like, ab- like comic machine. But one of the things I, I, I was, I was a huge fan of Mad as Hell. And so I was really amazed and, and totally delighted when, um, she wanted to do the show. But one of the things I love about her on Mad as Hell is I think that she, her comedy always comes from a place of truth. Like I think it's always really kind of grounded in in something, and even like these completely wackadoodle characters that she plays on the show, she never overplays them. She always finds some kind of like center of banality in them or something like that to exploit. I'm chatting with Declan Green, who's directing The Feather in the Web for Red Stitch Actors Theatre. Uh, for people who don't know the website, Audrey Journal, which is an independent arts journal in Sydney, uh, created by Alyssa and Jason Blake, www.audreyjournal.com.au. Great way to check on what's going up in Sydney. Um, uh, the Their review mentions that this is queering a heterosexual relationship and that's one of the mm. things that intrigues me about the work because it's programmed um, in partnership with Midsummer Festival. It's nominally a heterosexual romance uh, yeah. which is not necessarily a tra- traditional fair for Midsummer, but it really does sound like um, it's being queered in a number of ways, uh, kind of I know, exaggerating uh, anxieties, desires kind of dark impulses all those kind of things. Yeah, oh, I think it's. I, I think that the question about Feather in the Web as a queer play kind of uh, falls into that uh, conversation around the distinction of kind of gayness or sexual um, queerness uh, versus, I guess, kind of um, a queer aesthetic, political queerness. Yeah, or a, or a queer aesthetic. Because I, I think I think it is an aesthetically queer world, and I think that Kimberly is a queer force in the work. She's uh, she's. I mean, I think it's it's not necessarily that she isn't queer either. I think Kimberly is kind of like. Any, I think she's completely omnisexual or pan pansexual, because um, I think she'll just kind of do anything. <laughs> um, uh, it's kind of part of her anarchy. But yeah, it is. It is kind of effectively about um, her disrupting this heterosexual world and this very kind of banal, limited world, and making it more kind of violent and scary and colourful and punk and anarchic. And I think there's something deeply queer in that. It sounds great fun. Yeah, it is. It's super fun. And then it's super not fun. (laughs) It's super sad. (laughs) Well, speaking of super sad, it's rather sad, Declan, that Melbourne is going to be losing you because you've taken up a new job as artistic director Mm. of a small but absolutely vital theatre company, the Griffin Theatre Company up in Sydney. Yeah, I'm really, really sad about that as well. This is going to be my last show in Melbourne for a while. I don't even know how long. But yeah, I move up to Sydney in like a couple of weeks and that's where I'll be for a while at Griffin. Is that going to be a shock? Because you've uh, satirised uh, Sydney and Sydney gay culture in particular in your work in the past. <laughs> Actually, like very specifically Darlinghurst and Elizabeth Bay, exactly where Griffin is, yeah, in a play a while ago, The Homosexuals. Um, yeah, but I've also I've also worked at Griffin a whole bunch over the last few years. I think I've done like four or five plays there and it's I, I love it. Like I love that weird 
creaky, strange little kite-shaped space and, and it's 100 seats and it's wonderful and intimate. What, for Melbourne audiences who don't know Griffin, it, to me it's important because it's now the only Australian professional Australian theatre company that's kind of main stage mm. uh, that is dedicated to new Australian writing. So yep. while uh, the MTC and STC and Queensland Theatre and Black Swan and uh, State Theatre Company South Australia are all doing uh, new work, uh, as part of their programming, Griffin is unique in that it is dedicated to presenting and supporting the work, uh, new work by Australian playwrights. Yeah, and it's like it does uh, only do new Australian work and, and also sometimes canonical Australian work as well. But yeah, all Australian work. And also one of the things that's really important about Griffin is that it's really small. So it's easier to give artists their first break there. It's easier to take risks on um, voices and... Uh, political questions that bigger companies can't take on because they're too risky. So I think that's it's kind of like it's it's real dual importance that it's all Australian work, but also that it's it should be the Australian work that sits outside the box and that uh, is on the more challenging and more bold end of the spectrum. Such as your work, eight gigabytes of hardcore pornography, which uh, uh, Lee Lewis directed there. Yeah, 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 that's right, a few years ago. And Feather in the Web actually had its debut production there last year, which is kind of a really nice... I don't know, it was actually completely accidental. I didn't even know that um, that I'd be up for the Griffin job when I pitched Feather in the Web to Red Stitch, but it's sort of a really lovely thing that I'm getting to... I kind of use that as a baton to pass between my time in Melbourne and my time in Griffin at Sydney. Well, uh, Melbourne's loss is Sydney's gain. I am uh, kind of going to be sad to not have you around making work here, but I really look forward to seeing what you do at Griffin in Sydney and, and maybe shake up the Sydney theatre scene a little bit. Cheers. Thanks, Richard. And uh, as we said, uh, The Feather in the Web, uh, directed by Declan Green on at Red Stitch Actors Theatre. Uh, it is previewing. Uh, so it previewed last night. Uh, the 29th? Yes, yeah, first preview was last night. And so also previewing tonight and on Saturday night, then open Sunday, the 2nd of February, with the season running through until the 1st of March. Uh, Wednesdays to Saturdays, 8pm, Sundays at 6.30pm, and Saturday matinee uh, at 3pm on uh, the 22nd of Feb. Tickets, $29 to $55 plus booking fee, and you can book by calling 9533 that's nine five double three eight zero eight three, or www.redstitch.net to book to see The Feather in the Web at Red Stitch Actors Theatre on now until the 1st of March. Declan, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. When the Light Leaves is a play that is uh, having a remount. I saw it last year at La Mama. It's having a remount at Gasworks as part of the Midsummer Festival. Um, it is about uh, assisted suicide. So um, if that is a subject that is going to make you uncomfortable, go make yourself a cup of tea and come back in about 10 minutes' time. I saw it uh, the night that the Victorian assisted suicide legislation passed through Parliament, which made it uh, an even more kind of uh, dramatic and pivotal moment. Um, it's a finely crafted piece of theatre. Joining us to tell us more is actor Thomas Parrish, who's playing the lead role of Dan in the play. Thomas, welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having me. Very great pleasure. Lovely to have you here. Now... I was having a conversation recently with some friends about kind of theatre like this that's mm. tackling some sometimes challenging themes and can be emotionally gruelling. And said friend who's not a regular theatre goer was like, why would you go and watch something like that? I don't understand. 
Uh, to which I said, um, I would, uh, I enjoy being uh, kind of made to feel, and this is a kind of what what something that live theatre does. Absolutely, it kind of taps into emotions in a way that um, a book or a TV show may not do as well because you are literally watching people in front of you. Yeah, it's incredibly visceral, isn't it? When it's that way, I find the same. I, as much as I am a practitioner and an actor, I enjoy going to theatre too. And if I'm not changed when I leave, either if that is just being happy, you know. Maybe it's you've just gone and seen Aladdin or something like that and you feel really happy leaving or you feel like you need to go and think about... Like this piece of theatre, you have to go and think about something in your life and think about maybe what you believe whether it changes your opinion or not. Just having that effect on you, I think, is incredibly important. So when you were first involved with this production, why did you want to get involved? Because, I mean, it's a meaty role. I'm assuming that was part of it. Well, when I first auditioned, I actually originally auditioned for Liam, the other character, the other male identifying character. So it was quite funny when we were in the audition room and then the uh, beautiful director Jade said, how about we just switch these for a minute and you come in and be Dan and then we'll see what happens. And so I got that opportunity and went, oh, hang on. Yeah, this is this is really something special and this is something that I would like to pursue. And so having that opportunity then from there was really important for me. So the character uh, of Dan uh, mm. has a um, uh, a loving partner mm. um, and part of the dramatic tension of the play comes from Dan wanting to end his life. He has, um, uh, it's a, remind me, it's a, Brain, brain tumor. Yeah. yeah, he has um, terminal brain cancer, yeah. stage four. Yeah, so he wants to end his life, but he has a loving partner who is conflicted about that decision. Yeah, and I think it's it's not just that he wants to end his life, but he wants to have the ability to choose when. It doesn't necessarily mean that then and there, when he found out that he had brain cancer, that he wanted to end it. He wanted to choose the point where where it got too much, where the suffering, which is... And that's what all of these laws in any country are about. They're all about suffering and the amount of suffering someone is enduring. Uh, He wanted to choose when that suffering was too much and that is the point when to say goodbye. And so that's what it's all about. And I guess there's also that conversation then of selfishness too. I mean, some, some individuals may see it as selfish for Dan to take his life, but others may see it as selfish for Liam to want him to hold on until the very end. So the great thing about this play is there's no judgment on any side of the argument. Everyone gets to have their voice. So you get to hear the voice of Dan. You get to hear the voice of his beautiful husband, Liam. You get to hear the voice of his sister, um, and then you get to hear the voice of his palliative care nurse as well. So it's incredibly important. Um, and it's the thing that struck me watching the play uh, mm. is that it could be very easy to make this a fairly didactic piece of theatre with a message. Mm. But at its heart, this is uh, a very pure piece of drama because the heart of drama is conflict. Exactly. And here we have conflict coming from numerous directions. <laughs> it's constant. I don't think the conflict stops. There's, I mean, and that's also, I think, what makes it easier as actors to continue going through each scene is there is conflict and you have to address it. And so rather than dwelling in the the themes of the play, there's conflict of an individual person with another person and you have to get through that scene and that's what makes it flow, I think. Now, there's been a lot of talk in the kind of uh, creative communities around the... Uh, the impact of this kind of work, the impact that it has on actors, mm. uh, but then also the secondary or received trauma that it might have for the 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 
I don't know the the lighting person yeah. or the or the the stage manager who mm-hmm. is kind of witnessing Enduring this kind it every of, night. Yeah, the, the trauma night after night yeah. after night. For you collectively as a cast and crew, what are your strategies around kind of uh, emotional and mental well being yeah. with this production to support absolutely. one another and and to make sure that you can de roll successfully well, at the end absolutely. of the night and leave the characters and their drama in the theatre. Yeah, we were. There was a massive discussion at the very beginning. So from the onset, we always knew that this was something that needed to be addressed, that mental health is incredibly important for all of us because in this industry, it is an epidemic. I mean, it's an epidemic worldwide, but for this industry specifically, it's such an epidemic. And so we had all of this beautiful accessible stuff from Jade, our director, as well as Rory, the writer as well, saying, if you need any help, here is where to go. If you need any help from us, we're here for you as well. And because there's only four of us in the cast, it's we've become incredibly tight. We're, everyone says that the cast is their family, but we're very, very close and we're very supportive of each other in every moment of the play and every moment off stage as well. So for me, I get to leave stage... Oh, I don't leave the stage until the very end, but then when I do leave, there's a few little extra moments that happen on stage before the play finishes. So I get to take that moment. I just go off stage and I lie down and I take a moment for myself to, as you say, de-roll. And I think that I've created this routine for myself that's incredibly important. And if I break that routine, it would probably become slightly unhealthy for me. And we all have our individual ways of coping at the end. So we respect each other's ways. And some people, some of the cast may want to stay in their dressing room a little bit longer. Other people want to go out and see the audience because there's some catharsis in going out and going, hey, cool, we're all here. We all witnessed that. We all experienced that. And our beautiful stage manager, Terry, who's been with us from the beginning too, she has her own ways of dealing with it. And what I love as well is that uh, Jade, our director, has pretty much seen every performance, but she also knows when is enough because going through that every night and watching it is just, it's something else. And so she has gone, okay, I'm not going to come and see this show. And I think that's fair enough. And we all agree. We don't, <laughs> we don't need anyone to go through that process every night. But we do, obviously. So, <laughs> yeah. And I think that's enough. We're happy to bear the burden. Yeah. So it's a cast of four. But, uh, mm. And uh, I thought uh, Jade's direction was kind of skilled and focused. And, Agreed. And a relatively light touch as well, which is, I think uh, kind of worked beautifully with the material. Uh, and I also wanted to acknowledge some of the other uh, team members. So Beautiful Stu team. Brown's design, yep. which is simple, uh, but very, very clean. Uh, and uh, is it uh, Gina uh, Gascoigne, mm. who's mm-hmm. the, the lighting designer? It's an incredible lighting design. I, I think it assists in taking me from looking pre-illness to post very skillfully. There is this one light, we call it the sick light, (laughs) which will come on slightly. It's just this slightly green hue that really diminishes my state. And I think it's incredibly skillful. Now, in terms of the approaching any new production is always a case of uh, working often with the script writer in the room to workshop scenes, polish. Mm. They might hear a line and go, actually, that that doesn't land. Let's cut it. New scene, whatever the case may be, working on a new production. But for a production like this, I would imagine that you have also then uh, been working with healthcare professionals as well, perhaps, to get some advice around. And have you had to do research, for example, talking to actual palliative care nurses, for example, 
or or uh, people who know what the symptoms of brain cancer are? Yeah, I did a lot of research. There was because and there was discussions as well. Rory and Jade and myself had discussions about what type of cancer this is because well, what does that mean for all these other things? So we had to research it all down. I really recommend for anyone who's interested in this topic because it's an incredibly important topic. Um, Andrew Denton has a great podcast, Better Off Dead, which was my major point of hearing from people who have gone through um, voluntary assisted dying. So uh, some people may refer to it as assisted suicide, but the laws in Victoria, we we refer to it as voluntary assisted dying because that's what's assisted us in getting the laws passed. Uh, So voluntary assisted dying here has been interesting because I haven't really been able to speak to anyone until we had a panel, which has been really important. We actually have a panel for the show tonight. tonight yeah. There's a and a And so um, we got to speak or, and listen to people speak. We had a beautiful nurse who was actually finally getting to go through her process and starting to talk about it. And so I was listening to her really informed the rest of the season last time and listening to all these people from European countries that Andrew Denton got to interview they were people who were going through the process to family members who had gone through the process with their um, loved ones was for me incredibly informative and really set the tone for me about what this play is. The play that we're discussing is called When the Light Leaves and it's on at Gasworks as part of the Midsummer Festival. Uh, so the season finishes uh, this weekend. Yeah, this Saturday. It's yeah. quite a short one. Yeah, I think you've got, what, four or five shows? Or Just, what? yeah, in total. We opened last night. We have tonight at 7.30 and then the Friday-Saturday shows at the 9.30 slot. Okay. Uh, and then, as we said, there is a post-show Q&A tonight uh, at 9pm following the 7.30 performance of When the Light Leaves at Gasworks Art Park, 21 Graham Street, Albert Park. And that panel includes uh, the playwright, Rory Godbold, uh, Dr Nick Carr, who's a, a GP, and Fiona Patton, the leader of the Reason Party, who were uh, played a key role in bringing Victoria's voluntary assisted dying legislation through the parliament. So it should be, uh, I think, it's a beautiful piece of, of theatre. It's uh, skillfully scripted and uh, and staged uh, and I think if you do see it tonight then definitely stick around for that Q&A afterwards. Absolutely. Thomas Parrish, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R and uh, yeah, I kind of it's does it have a, a life after this? Is have I you hope got so? <laughs> <laughs> we 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 we'll, our people will talk to your people and we'll get back to you on that. We, we're hoping so. We'll see what happens. Well, I, yeah, I, uh, having seen it, I would love to see it have a, a further season and particularly perhaps to maybe to travel out to the regions or, or, or that, interstate. It, and that's a really important thing too is that theatre does tend to stay in its uh, in the big cities, but these regional towns are the people who really need to see this kind of thing because it's. It's an ageing population and that's the kind of conversation we need to have. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 